So we're here today with Janet Austin, the CEO of the YWCA of Greater Vancouver, for another in our series of Are We There Yet? Women, Position, and Power. So first off, I want to thank you so much for making the time to uh, be here today and to share some of your knowledge and experience with us, because I know what how busy you are. So, <laughs> well, thank you very much for the invitation. I do appreciate it. Oh, well, we really appreciate it, and I know that our readers and listeners will be really appreciative, too, once they've had a chance oh, I hope to hear so. what you have to say. I'm quite <laughs> certain. So why don't we start off by... Um, Having you just um, give us a little history, your current position, how you got here, a bit about your journey. Sure. Okay. So I am the CEO of the YWCA Metro Vancouver, um, but I'm also active as a community volunteer with quite a variety of organizations. So so a few... um, Things that are notable would be I'm the incoming chair of the Vancouver Board of Trade. Um, I serve as a director of, of the on the board of the Canadian Pediatric Society. Um, I'm involved with the Big Sisters organization, the TELUS Community Board, various things like that. And part of my role at, at the YWCA is to represent the organization externally. And so it's a wonderful um, opportunity to engage with and learn from um, really a multiplicity of organizations that have common values, that are working towards the same goals. So the YWCA is um, one of the largest and most diversified nonprofits, certainly in, in Metro Vancouver, if not the whole country. And um, we serve pretty close to 60,000 people on an annual basis. Uh, and we have a very diversified uh, network of services. So we're involved in things like health and fitness. Um, we have a significant program in the downtown east side where we work with uh, um, our country's most marginalized um, women and children. Um, we are involved in leadership, uh, youth programs, mentorship programs. Um, we have a network of services that support single mothers to make a successful transition to economic independence. And we off- also offer uh, quite a diverse array of employment services. So that gives you a little bit of a sense. Um, we're also active in, um, in uh, advocacy on uh, a number of key issues. Um, that we feel are fundamental to transforming society, both from an economic and a social justice point of view. And um, and those those issues are issues that are directly connected and, I guess you could say, grounded in our frontline service delivery. So that's the why. Um, I've um, actually had the privilege of... Uh, uh, serving in quite a wide variety of different types of paid employment. So I've been a media spokesperson. Um, I worked for the province where I was responsible for the um, property acquisition, design and construction of the social housing projects. Um, I've done communications and community relations work. Um, I've worked in regional planning. So so quite a range of different jobs. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, I'm an example of, of, of how it is possible to take skills that are acquired in one context and apply it in a context which may seem radically different. Um, but I've always enjoyed doing that. And, and I think it's also helped me to grow as a, as a professional and, and as a leader and hopefully as a human being as well. So just I'm curious, and I'm sure those that are listening and reading would be. So, and how did you get sort of to the position of leadership that you're in at the YWC? Was it something you heard about and were interested? Um, Were you approached? Were you in a similar position somewhere else? um, Well, you know, I have served in a number of 
leadership roles. Um, the YWCA is always is, is an organization that I have always admired. Okay. Um, so when the position came available, I was actually approached by a headhunting firm. Okay. And so that that was formally how it happened. Um, but uh, certainly, it's an organization that I'd always had great admiration for, and and you know I hadn't thought deliberately or strategically about going for this particular role. But when when it came available, it seemed to me to be a very natural fit. Um, I'm not a person who has uh, planned my career in a very deliberate way. Um, uh, I guess you could say I'm the accidental CEO. Um, I, you know, I really, I've always worked very hard, um, and I think because people could rely on me to deliver a good product, um, I found that at key stages in my career, I would be tapped on the shoulder and basically said, would you like to do this over here? Or would you like to try something different? So, so generally, that's how my career unfolded. Um, but I did go through a period of introspection when I hit my early 40s, and I thought a lot about uh, what had been most meaningful to me. Um, what were the moments uh, in, in work and in life that I actually felt most proud of? And that led me to recognize that much of that had flowed from work that I had done as a volunteer. Okay. And so I started to think about how I could incorporate that more in my professional work. And essentially that led me on the journey that I subsequently uh, followed. Right. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. So our next question focuses on the issue of gender, and obviously the fact that you are a woman, and your perception on whether or not that has affected your progression in your career. Has it hindered it? Has it helped it? Uh, and if so, how? Well, I think... You know, I, I think it's pretty well understood that certainly in the professional and the corporate world, um, we are not um, there. We're not in any way um, achieving equality in terms of of gender diversity in senior positions, and and the growth in in the improvement in those statistics has been slow. And in fact, you know, there is some argument that in fact we're going backwards in terms of um, women in senior leadership positions. Um, Stats Canada has done, uh, and I haven't seen a, a recent version of it, the last version is probably about five years old, they, they do a periodic report on um, uh, gender equity, and it's called Women in Canada, and that most recent report actually shows a decline in women in senior leadership from something like 27% to 22%. So I think it's really important to look at those statistics and to recognize that, in fact, we are going backwards. So, so in terms of myself personally, um, yeah, I've certainly been in, in positions where I have been the only woman or one of very few women among leadership, which was, was male. Um, and that has, that has had its difficult moments. Um, it toughened me up, I think, in some respects. Um, but I guess, I guess it's fair to say that uh, in order to be recognized, you perhaps have to work a little harder and you have to, what is it, Charlotte Witten said... Um, um, you know, to be to be as successful as a man, a woman has to be twice as good. Thank heavens, that's not difficult. But, okay, <laughs> now <laughs> I'm not saying that about myself, but but um, but I, you know, I think it is true that that um, the 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 kind of networking that happens quite naturally among people who um, have a common history, you know, you're not part of that when you're the lone women in a group of, of male executives. So, so you do have to approach things differently. Um, I have had the privilege of having both fabulous male bosses 
and somewhat horrible male bosses, just as I've had the privilege of working with fabulous women and some women who were perhaps a little bit more challenging. So um, is it more difficult being a woman to rise? Yes, I think so, and the stats would certainly bear that out. Um, But I think my success, to the extent you could call it success, has been both a combination of of, um, hard work, um, a certain amount of luck, being in the right place at the right time, um, and the support of some fabulous friends. Okay, mm-hmm. great, thank you. Um, in June 2011, I presented the closing keynote for the Wealth Academy for Women, and my topic was Women in Power. As part of my preparation, I googled Women in Power, and here is the first quote that came up. Powerful women are either sexually voracious rulers like Catherine the Great or Elizabeth I, or treacherous bitches like Cleopatra or Helen of Troy. Now, you are a woman in a position of power. Please share some of your thoughts on the reality of being a woman in power, given the stereotypes and biases that are out there. And if you wouldn't mind sharing tips that you might have for young women that are contemplating working their way up the corporate power hierarchy and how they can negotiate this challenging issue of being a woman and wanting to manifest, demonstrate, and get into a position of power. Right, okay. Well, first of all, I think that quote's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> you know? um, and, you know, I mean, it's just something you're, you're, you're just going to ignore. Um, I guess my own professional journey or my own career journey has been um, in part about finding a leadership style that works for me. Okay. And um, so I know that at times in my um, life, in my working life, um, uh, people have accused me of be- maybe being a little bit of a lightweight because of the niceness factor. Okay. You know, it's important to me to um, treat people well, to treat people decently. I like to work collaboratively. Um, and it's important to me have a good um, constructive working relationship with the people around me. Um, and so that's that's how I'm comfortable working, and frankly, it works for me. Um, I very much um, want to create and engender a, a team environment, and so I'm not a person that naturally um, moves towards a, a, you know a competitive dynamic among a leadership team. So I think over the years, uh, I have become increasingly comfortable with that side of my leadership. I know when I was younger. Um, and perhaps had been given uh, direction that um, was, you know, direction to lead in a way which was antithetical to my natural instincts. Um, you know, there are moments looking back where I was harder on people than I needed to be, uh, and those are moments that I'm not proud of, you know. So I'm, I'm not a person who has any difficulty making tough decisions. I can certainly do that, but I always try to do it with compassion and humanity and with respect for the people who are involved. So that's, that's been my, um, my approach and my experience, and, um, and I think it stood me in good stead. You know, uh, In the work that I do in the community and externally, I do believe that I command the respect of my peers, my male and my female peers, um, and I think they appreciate my style. So I just try to do what I think is best and what fits for me and and not really worry too much about what other people say or what other people think. And it's really the results that count at the end of the day. The other thing I would add is I had a a boss years ago, and this was a male boss actually, and he was a big, huge um, bear of a Scottish man. And he was all bark and no bite, but he was a lot of bark, you know. (laughs) 
so well it's true but he 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 was actually a very good boss he was a very personable um, man and he had often very wise sayings they seemed a little bit corny but there was always a kernel of wisdom to them and one of the things he said to me when I was really very young was was be nice to people on your way up because you never know who you may meet on your way down so that sounds a little bit flip um, but Ultimately, what's at the core of that advice is how important it is to build positive relationships and and um, to do your part, especially when there's tension or conflict in a relationship, um, to be the one to reach out, to heal that, um, and to make a deliberate effort to build those alliances. And inevitably, when you do that, um, the value, the benefit of that does come back to you. You don't do it for expectation of gain, but when you build those positive relationships, it's amazing what you can rely on um, down the road when you may when when you may need them. So it's kind of what I think of as the uh, it's the opposite of what people think networking is. You know, a lot of people think that networking is you go out in the community and you meet someone and you give them your business card and then you ask them to do something for you. I think it's actually the opposite. You go out in the community, you talk to someone, you find out what's interesting to them, what their goals are, and if you have an opportunity to help them, you do. And what happens then is you build a relationship and you build a certain amount of trust. And and it's amazing um, what benefits flow from that. So I think that's a piece of advice that I got um, that that I, I, I often share with people. Um, another piece of advice would be uh, to trust your instincts. I think the biggest decisions that, that I've made that I have regretted are decisions made purely from a rational basis where I have ignored um, I have ignored because I had a good rational argument for doing something or for hiring someone. And so I've ignored um, that kind of feeling in your stomach that is, hmm, maybe this isn't quite the right thing. So as I've matured, I've become much more comfortable actually paying attention to that side of me. And I think it's a good thing, you know. Um, it's not that you rely on it totally, but but it is a point of reference that I think can can validate your decisions or prevent you from making a decision that might not, in fact, be a good one. So those would be two pieces of advice. The other thing that's worked a great deal for me is um, the work that I've done over the years connecting in the community. Um, when you're in a position to to engage with an organization that. Um, whose mission is perhaps aligned with your values and you're prepared to actually put some some volunteer time into that. It's a marvelous thing because it helps you to develop skills, knowledge. You also develop a network um, that is outside of your professional network and it gives you a much broader perspective. You understand how different organizations work and inevitably there is information that you glean from those circumstances that helps you in your in your paid employment. So that is a piece of advice I would give people to the extent that they're able to do that. It can be an incredibly enriching. Okay, thank you. I, I would just love if you would be willing, if you could sort of do a rewind to that situation you describe about sort of being in a situation and being asked to sort of wear a cloak of leadership style that didn't work for you Um, what would have been a way or what would be a way for somebody in that situation to be able to maybe make a different choice or raise that in a way that wouldn't necessarily damage relationship but not force them to be in a you know take on something that doesn't feel comfortable to them well and and I think I think that depends to a large degree on the circumstance okay it depends to a large degree on who you're working with Um, um, but also I think the one thing that 
to me would make sense in a situation like that would be to focus on the end result you know so if I could say to my younger self handle this differently I, I perhaps would have been more forthright in saying what you need to be concerned about is the end result and the bottom line and, and, um, and, and if I'm not able to deliver that bottom line then let's have this conversation but give me the chance to do it the way, I th- the way that makes sense for me you know, so something like that, which is really setting your boundaries, mm-hmm. um, and 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 promising to deliver the results. Right. Um, the other aspect of that, I think, that's important is to seek out advice. You know, uh, I was never fortunate to have really any formal training when it came to supervision or management of people. I just basically learned through the school of hard knocks. Um, but I did over the years have a couple of people who who influenced me greatly. Um, And uh, one was a woman who was actually a peer. She wasn't um, senior to me in the organization, but she was about 25 years older than me and just an awful lot wiser. Um, And she did the most remarkable thing. When she would see me admiring someone, say someone like you, you know, (laughs) who was accomplished and had, had done some significant things, she would say to me, you know, Janet, there is no difference between you and that woman you are admiring than a few years and a bit of experience. And she would encourage me to apply for jobs that I hadn't got a hope in hell of getting. I was like totally ill-equipped for. Um, but she made me apply for those jobs. And she knew I wasn't going to get the jobs. Um, and at the time, I didn't fully realize what she was doing. But in retrospect, um, I was able to see that what she was doing was causing me to visualize myself in those roles and to see myself as capable. And when you go through that mental exercise, an interesting thing happens. It changes the way you see yourself. You start to say, well, what is special about that job? What, what would be so magic? Why couldn't I do that? Um, and it changes the way the, the way you present yourself, and I think when you do that, it changes the way people interact with you. So it was a marvelous gift that she gave me, um, and a, a marvelous example of informal mentorship. So I, I would really encourage people to seek out those those mentors, whether they're formal or informal, um, who can help them to um, sort through some of those questions of personal leadership. Um, and the other thing I would say to young women would be to think about few questions. One would be, what is most important to you? What is most important? You know, what's more important than money, right? You know, and to reflect on those questions. Um, And another would be, who are the leaders that you most admire and why? What is it about those leaders that you think is important, about the way they exercise leadership that is important? And I think if people reflect on those questions, it helps to clarify um, their own approach, their own values, and ultimately create that kind of alignment between, you know, what what you're doing, how you're behaving, and what your goals are. Okay, great. Thank okay. you. And um, what I'm hearing is that the act of applying for a, a job that you, it's not always about getting the job. No. But it's more about what the what the process of aspiring for something that you may think is beyond mm-hmm. your reach, what that can do for you in terms of personal development. I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great, thank you so much. That's, a, I think, a really um, helpful thing for um, aspiring leaders, but any of us, mm-hmm. I think, to be thinking about. 
Okay, the next question focuses on the issue of having children, because the research clearly supports the fact that having children is a career liability who are interested in making it to the C-suite. And I wonder um, how you feel about this reality and what your experience has been around this issue. As well, what thoughts do you have about how we might be able to address this issue so that the playing field can be truly equalized, or if you think that that's even possible? Yeah, okay. Um, Absolutely, I think it's possible. Um, But it's difficult. So I don't have children myself, um, and I greatly admire people who do because (laughs) I think it's an enormously challenging um, enormously challenging aspect of life and trying to balance a major career in raising children for men and women. Um, however, I, I think, um, you know, when I think about the women who are my friends who are in, in major leadership roles, um, many of them have actually negotiated different kinds of arrangements with their partners or spouses. So a number of them have hus- have husbands, male partners, who actually stay home and manage the domestic side of things. Um, some of them are affl- very affluent, and so they're able to afford two or three nannies that makes it possible for them to actually um, do this work. Um, I think what we, when, when you look at this issue and the challenge of work-life balance, for it is primarily a challenge for women. It is a challenge for men as well, but it's a much greater challenge for women, and certainly the statistics bear that out. And it's a function of our um, societal, cultural norms around views about women's role at home and role in the workplace. So... So women continue to carry the lion's share of responsibility for child care, elder care, domestic work, um, even though there has been some shift in, in men's um, as, assumption of these roles, particularly among younger men. But it's actually been quite a minor shift. So that, I think, is a major impediment to women in greater numbers um, being um, able to take advantage of the opportunities, the leadership opportunities that might otherwise present. So how do we address that? I think we need to address it really by, by looking at, um, these are societal issues. They're not, they're not just individual issues. They're not just a question of how you negotiate that relationship in a, in a relationship, and they're not just a question of what workplaces need or need not to do to support um, women's advancement, although both of those are important questions. Really, um, it's a function of what we have in place in terms of family policy framework. We have no system of high-quality early learning and care for children. So inevitably, uh, when families want to have children, um, if they can access childcare, it's extremely expensive, and and even if they're prepared to pay money for it, there aren't spaces for many people. So inevitably, or generally, it is the woman who tends to pare back on the career, uh, interrupt the career in order to in order to care for the home, and again, that's reinforced by social norms. Um, I think men suffer um, from some of the same the same challenge that women do except in reverse so women are tend to be feel criticized or are overtly criticized um, if they work when they have young children so they're criticized for just for choosing to work um, and men are are criticized for choosing not to they're viewed as not being serious about their jobs so I think that we should take a serious look at some social policy reforms, some public policy reforms that would create incentives for men to play a role in caregiving. One might be the extension of um, parental leave from 12 months to 18 months with a portion reserved exclusively for men. So say say you had 18 months parental leave and four of those months were, were to be taken by men only, use it or lose it. 
I think what would happen then would be you would have families, you would have it would it would normalize the caregiving role of men in society. Yeah. You would see more men actually playing that role. When you have more men involved with child rearing at a young age, the research shows that they are much more likely to continue to play that role, you know, throughout life. So they're more likely to change diapers, to cook food. So it's it's at that critical stage when when new patterns are being formed in a family. Um, that there is an opportunity to shift that. The other thing that would happen would be it would remove some of the gender bias in hiring decisions. Right. You know, so when women, uh, you know, have a man and a woman, they're both in the same family for information period. Um, they're competing for the same job. You know, even if the woman is a slightly better candidate than the male. Um, very often the man will get the job because there's an expectation that she will be interrupting her career for maternity leave. If you have more men playing that caregiving role and it's shared more equally, then that removes that gender bias. And so I think that you, you start to see more equality in women. So this has actually been proven out in a number of European uh, jurisdictions and it's actually being executed in Quebec as well. So so people will often think of this as fairly radical, but I think you know these are things we need to talk about as a society. We also know that if we invest in in the um, early development, early learning, and childcare, um, that there are profound economic benefits through women's um, full um, participation in the labor market. You know, so GDP growth would be significantly benefited, um, and women are currently underemployed. So we have the best educated generation of women in our history, and yet they're underemployed largely because of these work-life balance issues. That's a very wordy answer. Okay, no, but thank you very much. <laughs> time, okay. So let's be okay. <laughs> time to get into activism with relation to uh, trying yeah. to get some of these social policies passed. So as I'm thinking you are aware, I spend a great deal of my time historically over the last 15 years. I've had my business dealing with issues of disrespect and in particular yes. bullying and harassment. And uh, the unfortunate statistics around uh, these uh, disrespectful behaviors are that women are overwhelmingly targeted in these kinds of complaints. And when it comes to bullying, it is women when they are in a, when they do choose to, or they do engage in bullying, they overwhelmingly target other women. And in my work and research, this relates back very much to the dynamic of power that we were talking about earlier. And I wondered if you would share your experience uh, around um, issues of bullying and harassment, um, whether you've experienced it or seen it, and what ideas you might have about how to shift the reality for women at work who tend to be targeted. And in my experience, often it's because they simply don't speak up about it. Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, it's interesting. I... um personally, um, have never been bullied by a woman. I haven't. However, I have been bullied by a man, <laughs> uh, you know, and, 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 and so I, I guess, you know, I haven't really been in a context where I observed that kind of bullying behavior um, from female colleagues. In fact, I think, you know, certainly the network of women here in Metro Vancouver, we have an incredible network of very supportive senior female leaders who help each other, reach out, who are actively involved in mentoring young women. Um, so that kind of behavior, that um, harassing and bullying behavior, I, I think I, I, you've mentioned that when women bully, they tend to bully other women. Um, I think when bullies bully, they tend to bully people who, who do not um, push back. Right. I think when... when um, you know, bullies will try and, and, and press your, your buttons. Um, but 
until they recognize that you can't be bullied. Right. Um, and so I think it's very important to set your boundaries. You know, it can be incredibly difficult. And, and it requires a basic level of self-confidence um, and, and a pattern of behavior which reinforces that self-confidence. So so much of it flows from a person's, um, you know, family upbringing, their, their basic self-respect. Um, it can be very challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly when people are in a position where they need their job, um, they can be fearful for, for, of pushing back. So these are these are learned behaviors. They're learned patterns of behavior. Um, but I think you know what used to be called assertiveness training is a very good thing, you know, for people uh, to support people to develop um, positive modes of communication um, that enable them to perhaps take the emo- emotion out of a, a, a um, an emotionally charged situation right. and respond in a neutral, fact-based way, which also allows them to set their boundaries. So I, I think, you know, that, that would be what my advice and that would be my encouragement, you know, to people would be to, to, uh, to if, they, if they find themselves in a situation where they're bullied, to seek some help, some practical help in terms of how to address it and push back and, and, um, and, and set appropriate boundaries. The other aspect too is workplace, you know, workplace um, um, guidelines. Right. You know, um, and again, very much of this is down to the individual workplaces. There are cultures that tolerate that kind of behavior, encourage it, um, and there are those that don't. And I think it's important for us when we're for anyone when you're looking for employment to try to be conscious, try to understand the culture that you're moving into. You know. Um, and and there are ways to find that sort of thing out, um, but to to be be make a deliberate. Um, hi. hi oh, I, I, I've got to go soon. Yes. Sorry, <laughs> I'll be quick. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Um, uh, what was I saying? Um, Workplace policies. Yeah. Um, yeah, to, you know, to make a deliberate effort to understand the workplace that you're entering, um, and that's one that's consistent with your values. Okay, thanks. Okay. All right, well, good timing. It's our last yeah. question. Um, if you could speak to a group of male CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, um, what would you like to say to them around the sort of the subjects that we've been talking about? You know, women right. and leadership, and you've already given some hints for um, young, ambitious Gen Y women. Or now we're almost into Gen Z women. Yes. But what advice might you have um, for them? Okay. So speaking to a group of Fortune 500 leaders, I think that uh, what I would like to share with them would be the positive results uh, that are generated when organizations make a strategic effort to embrace diversity in their leadership, both at the board and the executive level. There's a lot of research that demonstrates that those organizations outperform the norm through a series of objective measures, including including financial. So it makes good business sense. Um, having diversity at the table is um, is really all about creating the context where you can have a richer set of ideas to inform decision making and gender diversity is absolutely key to that so I think again you know we can encourage people to do these make these changes for sort of social justice reasons or altruistic reasons but ultimately businesses are interested in results and if you can demonstrate their results were improved then I think that's that's good uh, and then in terms of advice um, what I would say is that is that it's important to step up. 
you know, if there are things that, if, you, if, if you're ambitious, you want to advance your career, um, don't wait for someone to come and ask you. Take responsibility. When you see opportunities, put up your hand and offer to do things. You know, and I think if you do that, uh, people will, first of all, they'll appreciate it, um, but they will rely on you more, and they will see you as a person that, that can be relied on. So you want to do that in a way that that um, um, that, that that gets good results, um, that you produce a good product, so you want to make sure that when you stick up your hand and offer to do something, you actually have the capacity to do it, and you're going to be able to follow through and deliver on time and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's a, it's a very, uh, I think, valuable thing to you know, to reach out. The other thing is to look at building positive alliances within your organization, within your community. So it's back to that comment I made really about what networking really is. Um, so the more you understand others' objectives and can align with those objectives, um, where there's consistency between theirs and yours, the more powerful you will be in any working situation. Okay, yep. great. Okay. Well, thank you so much right. again for taking the time um, to speak with us today. I know that it's been fascinating for me, and I'm sure it will be the same for our readers and listeners. So thanks again, Janet. All right. Thanks, Erica. I appreciate it very much. 